Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Work Stories is a place for women of color to share their experiences in the workplace. We're no longer whispering these stories to our best friends and partners and then shoving them to the backs of our minds and just doing. We're talking about bias, equal pay, bad bosses, racist hiring practices, and all the crazy things your coworkers have done or said to you. This is a safe place to tell those stories. The floor is open, y'all. We are telling it all. Welcome back to Work Stories. Next, we're talking with someone who's dedicated their whole career to protecting human rights, particularly for girls, femmes, and gender-expansive youth of color. If you want to know more about the realities of advocacy work, especially when you're a brown woman doing the work, this is your episode. So my name is Maheen Kaleem. I go by she, her pronouns. I'm a first-generation Pakistani. I was raised in a Muslim household on the traditional lands of the Ohlone people in the Bay Area of California. I'm very proud to be from the Bay. I wear it kind of on my sleeve everywhere I go. <laughs> like I said, my homelands are in Pakistan and central India, and I now live on the traditional lands of the Lenape people in Brooklyn. I sort of self-identify as kind of widely having committed my career and being really fortunate to have committed my life, my time to advancing a world where girls, femmes, gender expansive youth and women are safe free and thriving, which has meant a lot of different things for me. I'm a human rights lawyer by trade, but it's really been because I was raised in a household that really was committed to and focused on justice. It was a big part of the conversations that we had and sort of the direction that I was pushed and the ways that my parents and community members and elders live their lives. And I've been really fortunate to kind of continue to pursue that in different ways, both in my personal and and even more in my professional life. So when you started college or you were preparing for college, did you already know that you wanted to do advocacy work because of that upbringing or were you still unsure? So when I was preparing for college, I knew that I wanted to do something that would shift the world in some way. Mm. And I was kind of watching what was happening. I don't know that I had language for it, but in my high school, I was like noticing a lot of moments of crisis. I was everybody's crisis responder in middle school and high school. And so I knew that I felt called to kind of support people, particularly when they felt cast out or didn't know where to go. Mm -hmm. But when I was starting college, I think I knew I wanted to get very far away from, from home. So I went across the country and I was fortunate to do that. And I knew that I wanted to study kind of work that advanced human rights. 
but I absolutely did not necessarily ever see myself as being sort of a self-identified advocate. When I was graduating, I didn't even know that I wanted to go to law school. I had this dream of being an activist anthropologist and doing like participatory action research with girls in Pakistan and Philly and DC and Oakland and kind of talking about how regardless of the conditions there are kind of some similar experiences when you're experiencing marginalization and also similar access to your internal power when you're forced to kind of survive. And so I think I was curious about those things, but I definitely did not know that I wanted to be a lawyer and I did not necessarily see myself being kind of a public or outspoken named advocate. That wasn't, I just knew I wanted to advance justice in some way. Yeah. You jumped right in after getting your bachelor's, right? I always say my greatest teachers were girls inside juvenile halls. And I started doing work with girls inside when I was 18, like when I was in college. And so when I talk about the trajectory, it starts there. And then I continued to do a lot of activism in college campuses. And then fresh out of college, I did jump right in. So my very first job out of college was by the grace of the people who saw something in me or needed somebody at that time, I became a first responder for one of two programs in the country that were kind of state-run programs to address what at the time was called the commercial sexual exploitation of children, but now is sort of more widely known as child sex trafficking or domestic child sex trafficking. So I was the only first responder in the entire Bay Area, which was a lot of different counties, and there weren't a lot of folks that were kind of recognizing particularly Black and Brown girls born in the U.S. as being victims like or yeah. being survivors, like they were treated as criminals. And so it was kind of new. I got thrown into it, and I I learned so much from those girls, many of whom are still in my life. I was not that much older than them. And so we, in so many ways, grew up together. And so I guess, yes, in that way, I did jump right in. And I learned a lot about what it means to use what you have in order to shift conditions for people that could leverage your support, and also what it means to create the conditions for other people to lead and to create change in their own lives. Yeah, this seems like a job with so much responsibility. And it seems like you're fairly young still at this point. How was that adjustment? I mean, was it overwhelming? I mean, in some ways, yes. I think anybody's first job out of college is overwhelming. And in that particular space, like there were definitely like life and death situations and things I hadn't necessarily conceptualized or been prepared for. So I was definitely overwhelmed at times, but I think the kind of consistent thread in my personal and professional life has been that there is always a woman and inevitably a black or brown woman that has got my back and is going to make sure that I'm okay. And if I am humble enough to receive their guidance, I'm going to be led in the right direction. And so I was definitely overwhelmed. I definitely got into situations I didn't need to get into, but I was fortunate to have in particular somebody that I consider like a big sister now who saw me and kind of let me fall when I needed to fall, but also protected me when I needed protection and kind of guided me out of situations. It's so amazing that you had and found a mentor as soon as you were out there to offer you support like that. I know that's something a lot of our listeners struggle with, like finding the appropriate mentor for their goals and where they're headed, not only where they are in the moment. So that's amazing. I mean, I would say like, we didn't necessarily find each other. Like we were sort of thrown together, but I will say that initially she wasn't part of my hiring process. She didn't know who I was and she wasn't sure 
sure that I was the right person to really hold the level of trauma and crisis that these young people that we were supporting were dealing with. But she went out of her way, not even for me or for her, but for the girls. And so I say that to say, like, sometimes it's not actually about you and the relationship to the other person. You're not necessarily going to find the person you had in mind as your, you know, she didn't self-identify as a mentor. It was just that she had more experience supporting these young people. And she knew that if she didn't support me, they were going to suffer. And so sometimes it's about like the common goal. And then through that, we developed a lifelong, extremely significant connection to each other that has remained like wherever I've gone and wherever I've moved. Wow. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Like, okay, we're just going together for the bigger goal. So for me to succeed as a part of this goal, you need to succeed. So I'm helping you so we can get there. It's not always like, oh, I think you're amazing and we're going to be best friends. It's just... (laughs) I need this to work. Exactly. And I don't know that we would have, I mean, like, I have such deep respect for her, but I'm sure I'm clear. Like, I don't know. And she told me at the beginning, she was like, I don't know who you are. I don't know if I should trust you. I don't (laughs) even know if I like you. But you seem to have some fight in you and you seem to want to be here. And so, you know, sometimes it's just about giving the room and the space to do that. Yeah. And it seems like in this kind of work society we're in, obviously, this is more tedious, sensitive work. But in general, in our work culture right now, there's more of an emphasis on competition, right? And a lot of other situations, even ones where there are young people or vulnerable communities at stake, people will still choose to see you fail, let you fail instead of assisting you because that seems to be where we are right now. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think, you know, folks can attribute it to like all the structural things that are happening. And I think it's absolutely that, right? The structures aren't always set up to let people know that it's okay for us to be in community together. It's okay for us to collaborate. It's okay for us to see each other win and shine because the goal is not about us. I see it in the nonprofit and social justice space a lot as like the professionalization of this work. And and also like there's more money in it now. And so like the more visible you are, it becomes less about the end goal and more about the person. And you see it in so many places. And I think also just to say, like, as women and girls were often socialized to be in competition with each other, you see it in any level. Like you see it in a workplace. When I was working with girls who were trafficked, you saw it in the streets. Like, And so much of our work, I think, is about decolonizing and kind of deconstructing and deprogramming ourselves from thinking that that's the way we have to be, because it's a lot of energy that goes in. I'm not a competitive person by nature. I just find that that's a lot of energy to be in that space of having to feel like I'm pitted against, especially folks that I don't like, you're not my nemesis, you're not my enemy, and we have much bigger enemies. And so it actually is not the best use of my time or energy. But I definitely see that creep in, especially like you said, even when it's an organization that has a mission that's about, for example, women and girls of color, and you see folks in the organization. And for me, that's like, this is about other structures that have not been set up to create the space for us to act actually be with each other and work together in the ways that we naturally would if all of those things didn't exist. Right. Talk to me about being a brown woman doing this work. We know there can be a lack of intersectionality in any feminist movement type of work. How has that been for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I can talk generally and then I can talk specific. I mean, right now I am the vice president of programs and operations for grant makers for girls of color. And we are basically creating a philanthropic home for movements and organizations that center and respond to girls 
girls, femmes, and gender expansive youth of color. So basically what we do is a lot of support, raising money and advocating for investment in organizations that are led by black and brown women and girls and other young folks of color and are doing the work in communities. And so I will say that there are in broad terms, like you said, in a lot of feminist spaces, there's just a lack of intersectionality. So there's like an, er an active erasure mm -hmm. of the knowledge production and schools of thought that we've actually benefited from. So like, for example, this concept of like centering the most marginalized, that's Black feminists that gave us that, that yeah. framework, right? Like, there's so many feminisms from the global South and ways of being from the global South, from like my homeland and other places that influence the way that, you know, the little tidbits or the quotes that people use without actually understanding kind of where that came from and what happened. So there's not only like sort of a dismissal, but there's like, I think, an active erasure. Mm -hmm. I think in the philanthropy side, one of the things we see is like people don't trust us with their money. I see it all the time with executive oh, wow. directors who will sit, tell me stories and I've seen it, I've seen it with us, where there's a woman, you know, Black woman who's been in the community who may have been formerly incarcerated, who knows exactly what her community of formerly incarcerated women and girls needs. And they're meeting with a foundation that says they care about ending incarceration of women and girls or something for, you know, six six rounds of meetings and still don't know if they're getting the grant. Meanwhile, you know, a very large white-led organization that gets a lot of government funding and has a white woman at the helm announces an initiative and, you know, two weeks later, they're announcing a multi-million dollar grant. I've seen it time and time again. And so for wow. me, in the time that I've spent in philanthropy, I've learned that that often is about people not trusting us with their dollars. Mm. And even when they're claiming and say, well, the people closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but you make those people go through so many more hoops. So that, that's mm -hmm. something that I've definitely experienced myself and also seen with other folks, um, other women and femmes of color in the work. And then all the layers, right? Like I think as a Pakistani woman, as a Muslim woman, on the one hand, people assume that we don't have the capacity to lead, that we are submissive, that we come from histories and communities of oppression that somehow inhibit our ability to be leaders. I have definitely personally experienced that kind of trope impacting whether someone thought that I was capable of taking on a project or moving forward in a particular position. And then on the other hand, you're sort of faced with actively having to reject the ways that our communities are pitted against each other. So for example, if I'm very loud and aggressive, it cuts against the like stereotype of what people think a Pakistani woman is, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, she's so cool because she's Pakistani, but she talks a lot or but she's aggressive or but she powerful as though that's not innate. And at the same time, I see like a Black woman colleague who is exhibiting the same kind of characteristics and she's called aggressive and she's called problematic and she's called, you know, a problem in the workplace. And so I think one of the things, one of the challenges has been being aware of that enough to know that that doesn't serve any of us. One, you know, whoever is projecting that on is both denying kind of the fullness of who me and my community is and also my sister who's doing this work next to me and or ahead of me or behind me or whatever. And so I see that a lot in terms of like the specific identity that I hold. And then like, I think this is both an advantage and a challenge, but like people don't know what to do with me. I'm very rarely in a room with other, all other Pakistani women, especially when you're talking about like US-based feminist work, right? And mm -hmm. so um, there are a lot of us. I know a ton of amazing radical Pakistani femmes who are doing incredible work in communities, but we have to find each other. We have to seek each other out. We're not like 
walking into a room. There's no caucus for us. You know what I mean? And so mm. I think in some ways there's an advantage to that because like, if people don't know what to do with you, you can lead a little bit more with just who you are. Yeah. And I've definitely been able to benefit from that. And I don't take that lightly because I know a lot of people don't have that luxury. But then on the other hand, because people don't know what to do with you, they don't trust you. And I, I say that, mm. I said that about money earlier, but I think that goes to a lot of different things. Like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why do you care? Because our histories are not as visible. Like you don't know necessarily, it's not kind of public knowledge how systems of oppression here in the U.S. have translated both to our homelands, but also to the conditions that folks here experience. And so there are a lot of things attached to that, that, you know, for example, like the majority of Pakistanis in this country don't grow up above the poverty line, but we get lumped in with other groups. And so mm -hmm. I think in general, whenever you're talking about folks that come from less visible communities and whenever you're essentializing people to one aspect of their identity, right? Like blackness is not a monolith, neither is, you know, Asianness or neither is being woman or femme or gender expansive. And so I think all of those things, whenever you hold intersectional identities can be challenges because whiteness is considered to be the norm and the standard and it fears complexity and nuance and difference you know what i mean and so i think you're just kind of combating all of those things and i'm often in rooms where people are like who is this person what is she doing here i don't understand how you fit in this conversation and what would you know and i think for me i love to be underestimated it's like the place where i derive the most power is like i want you to assume that i don't know anything because it actually gives me more power in this place yeah. but you know it takes time to get there i can say that now because i've been really fortunate to be able to do work that i love and to have opportunities that are both a function of the work that I've done and absolutely the privileges that I've been extended for a whole host of reasons. So I don't take it lightly that that's a place not everybody gets to be in. But for me, it's been like a really great source of power in terms of how to navigate different situations. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yeah. Being underestimated is like, uh, it's like a gift and a curse. And <laughs> more so a gift though, once we figure out how to use it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Talk to me about the hard parts of human rights work. I mean, what have have been some challenges you've experienced? You know, I was thinking about this. I so deeply believe that there is a world that is free from gender-based violence and free from the kind of dynamics that we were talking about in terms of what people have to go through in order to access their basic rights and their human needs and work if they want to or not work in ways that make sense for them. I think the hardest part is that people People don't always believe it's possible. So on the one hand, it's like fear. I was listening to him. I love listening to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And yes, I was listening yes. to her interview Ayanna Presley this morning. And Ayanna Presley talked about how a lot of times when people are reacting with vitriol, it's actually coming from a place of them fearing losing something. Mm -hmm. And so as I was thinking about like kind of this work, it, that really resonates in terms of like other people's fear of what they think they might lose if somebody else wins continues to be a challenge because then they actively work again. So one of the hardest parts is like people are actively working to ensure that women, girls, femmes, and gender expansive people, especially those who aren't white, 
don't have power. Like there are forces in play and coalitions and money and effort and power and policy that is actually like put behind ensuring that we don't access that power. So that's like one very real challenge is that you're constantly facing those circumstances. And then the other side of that is like, because of all those things, people have a lack of capacity to actually believe that that other side is possible. And that is, I think, the hardest part. When you know that something is possible and you don't know what it looks like, one of my dear friends and sisters, Tanisha McHarris, always says, like, we don't know what freedom looks like, but we're going to keep building the boat to get there. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like the not knowing what it looks like is the hardest part. And so people get so stuck in the not knowing what it looks like that it gets in the way of them taking the big chances or trusting that we should keep going, even if we don't know what it looks like. Yeah. When you don't know what it looks like, the ultimate goal, right? Because you've never experienced it. I mean, do you just keep changing the goal? Do you get somewhere and then are you unsure when to celebrate? I mean, it seems like it could be confusing. Yeah. I was talking to somebody that I love and mentor um, in my own life yesterday and she was sort of grappling with the reality that things that she thought were going to be her main goals in life are just not going to happen because of life circumstances. Mm-hmm. And she was in the active moment where you realize that that's going to happen and you're you're just grieving that. And you're like, what yeah. is possible, right? And it's hard to see that. I mean, I was kind of like, change the goal. So like, mm-hmm. I think in some ways, sometimes it is that, right? I think the other thing is, even if you know, it's there's like the moment of acceptance, even if it's not possible in my lifetime, what do I actually want to see in my lifetime? It's like in any works project, right? It's like, how do you create the incremental things that let you know that it is worth continuing to go on. I think about like, I have a lot of friends in the creative industries, right? And oftentimes they're like, I'm just going to give this up, but it's not working. It's not happening. But so many times on their journey, I'm like, but there was something there that told you to keep going. There was Mm -hmm. some producer that called you back, some director that cast you in something, something that happened that told you like, and you haven't actually been told that you are terrible or that you suck or whatever. So that tells me that it's not worth letting go yet. And so sometimes it's just about that. It's just about maybe I let this go in the future, but I'm not done yet. And something in my body is telling me that I'm not ready to let it go yet. And so I think it's both the how do you set the incremental goals to give you the power and the hope and the affirmation that you should move forward. And then sometimes giving yourself the freedom. This is the other side to be like, what if there's a different possibility? So I think about a lot of my friends that are like at law firms and I'm so proud. I have so many friends from law school that are now being like the youngest black woman or the youngest woman of color or the youngest woman partner at their law firm just in the last year. And it's been so beautiful to like witness their power and growth. And often I think, and I've talked to them about this, like sometimes there's a moment where you're like, what if this doesn't happen? Like, what if I just leave this corporate life behind? I actually just want to go do other things in the world. I want to focus on my family, whatever. And I think sometimes giving yourself the freedom to explore the what ifs also Mm -hmm. allows you to be sure at the other side of that exploration, if you're like, yeah, but I still actually feel energy to get up tomorrow and do this again, that maybe it's not time for you to let it go. So like for me, I was a direct service provider. I was in it all day, every day, day and night. My physical body was in the community, like with young people who were being, I was like, get it. I mean, I shouldn't have been doing this at this time. And I was like getting up in the middle of the night and driving to go pick up girls who are in like very dire situations. Like that's not my lane right now. Like that's not where I should be right now. I was equipped or not equipped. I don't know. That happened. I'm so fortunate that they let me be a part of their lives in that way. And also it took a great toll on my physical well-being, my safety and so many other things. And I, unlike a lot of folks, had like the capacity 
capacity to actually at that point go to law school. So I was like, all right, well, maybe then my lane is to be a juvenile defender. And I tried some of that in law school and realized like that actually wasn't my lane. Then it turned into, well, I hate these laws. They don't make any sense. I actually want to change them. And then I went into like a policy angle. And from that, I realized, well, there are all these amazing community-based organizations and organizers and all they need is like resources. They need resources in terms of policy. They need resources in terms of financial resources. And they need people who believe in them and see them and can organize those kinds of resources in support of them. And so I got pulled into the philanthropy side and I give that trajectory. I know to some people, it seems like unfocused. For me, the goal has always been the same. Mm -hmm. It's just the tactics have shifted. For some people, I'm like, if your body is tired of being out in the streets, like feet to the ground, maybe it's time for you to write, or maybe it's time for you to support and train the people who actually are going on the ground or teach or create art or whatever that thing is. Or maybe it's time for you to just be and model what it looks like to have a full life where justice is always a part of your core and your so many other things. And so Mm -hmm. I think, I don't know that people let it go if it's really in them. I think just like the ways that they move in the world and advance it look different, you know? Yeah. This is just reminding me, I've had so many conversations about when you know it's time to do the policy work versus working on the ground. Exactly. (laughs) You know, you want the policies to be different for when you go from complaining to changing and and what does that look like? That's a great point. If it's really in you, it's going to be in you. It just, it's going to look different and and what you're going to do with it is different. So when I talk to people, I think everybody feels like they're an advocate for something. Everybody feels passionate about something, you know, it could be children, it could be animals, it could be the environment, right? Everybody's got like a thing. But sometimes I don't think everyone fully understands, probably including myself, what advocacy really looks like. What do you think is an essential quality for a great advocate? Yeah, it makes me think of like how some people say like everybody doesn't need a mic. And I actually, I really do believe that's true. Um, And I love that you asked this question. I think the primary quality is understanding the thing you're trying to change. I think there are a lot of people who see something either because they experience something in their own life or they read something or watch something or get inundated with information that is external about a problem or a condition and then decide they want to do something. Mm -hmm. I think studying is really important. And I don't mean like studying in an academic way necessarily, although sometimes that's important. So I, for example, have worked on issues surrounding the sex trade for a long time, and it's very complicated. And there are a lot of people with lived experience who have differing analyses of what should be different and what should change. And so I often say to people that like young folks that come in, if you ever meet someone who is like, I know the solution to end sex trafficking, or I know the solution to make sure that folks who are in the sex trade feel liberated. If they know the solution, they do not know what they're doing and they have not been in the work long enough because it is complicated and there is no one like silver bullet for a lot of those things. And so I think a lot of times when I see people, first of all, like if someone is like, I am an advocate, I don't know, an advocate for what? Like, what is the thing that you're advocating for? Like just to be an advocate is not a thing, I don't think. But I do think that if you haven't personally experienced the thing that you're trying to change, you need to be in deep relationship and deep listening with people who have. Mm -hmm. And then 
you need to do the work to figure out what else are people already doing? What have people been doing? What's already been tried? And once you know those things, then start to kind of, and I, I don't think that's a time thing. I actually think that our entire mission at G4GC is to get people to just get out of the way because young people have a lot of solutions and answers. Girls, femmes, and gender expansive youth of color, particularly when you look at racial justice, social justice, climate justice, like the people that are actually leading those movements are those young people. And most of them are leading them from a place of deep expertise. Like they're the ones that are looking around at the world and being like, this climate is not okay that the weather looks like this every day when I go to school, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm seeing what's happening in my community. Or my friend, like, unfortunately and horrifically got abused by a school resource officer in a very violent way. And like, I am changing this because I see this in my school every day. So I think for me, the biggest and most important quality to being an advocate is being informed. And that means doing the work to be informed. And there are a lot of ways you can do it, um, but that feels like the most important. How you do the advocacy actually doesn't matter. Some people are artists, some people are researchers and they just kind of listen to folks and synthesize their thoughts. Some people are on the mic, some people are writing a letter. Those things can look different, but it's knowing what you're talking about that feels important and it doesn't actually require a lot of fancy skill more than it does like deep listening and then the second thing is like I love Nikki Giovanni and I often return to her her words and her writing um she I think the other essential quality of an advocate she says a lot of people refuse to do things because they don't want to go naked or go without guarantee but that's what's got to happen and she says you go naked until you die and I think that if you're gonna be an advocate for change, you have to be willing to go without that guarantee and you have to have some skin. She talks about being naked, but like if there is no vulnerability from you, if it is just about other people, I don't know that you're going to have enough stake to keep you going. Mm -hmm. Wow. Powerful. Wow. Thank you so much. Just, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I need to go like right after this. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I, you ask such good questions. And I think they're not questions that we get to consider a lot, especially when you're thinking about like the workplace, right? Like when you're mm -hmm. thinking about like what you do every day and how it's connected to your larger self. And I see it with people where especially people who are not like in the social justice kind of like they don't get paid to do social justice work, which right. a lot of people, they choose that because they want to retain a purity to that work that they do. And I think that oftentimes, especially now that you see these people who are like professional advocates, you know, mm -hmm. there is an idea. And, you know, I lived in D.C. for a long time and a lot of people who move to D.C. come there because they have the idea of what an advocate looks like and they come to be that thing. Right. Mm. And I think the most powerful advocacy I often see is like in a home, in a community, like I have seen my nieces and nephews advocate for like literally shifts in attitude in our families where like, you know, an elder said something that they felt was inappropriate or ill-informed or problematic. And they, you know, took months with a lot of strategy to be like, I'm going to change their mind. I'm going to take them to this rally. I'm going to make mm -hmm. them watch this documentary with me. I'm going to leverage my personal relationship with them and the fact that they love me to make them listen to me. And I've seen like so many beautiful things happen where those shifts that we actually need to get us closer move because of those things that are like 
the things people don't think are that visible, but are the things that actually are going to get us closer to whatever that freedom looks like on the other side. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of this. Before we go, though, I want to play a quick little game with you just so folks get to know you a little better. I'm just going to say like some words or phrases and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Hopefully this is not that dangerous. <laughs> no, it's not, nothing, nothing you can't handle. Um, GoFundMes. Effective. The show Law & Order. Whew. Mariska. <laughs> I'm just going to put it there. <laughs> I is necessary. Um, your favorite food right now? My favorite food is wine. I don't, that's not a food. Um, I'm going to go with, it's bread. I'm like Oprah. Mm. It's bread. <laughs> oh my God, love. Okay. Uber or Lyft? Uber. I know. It's bad. Espresso shots. Mm, the coffee project, Ooh, okay, which is was... down the corner for me. Nice. Um, women in leadership. Necessary. Therapy. Essential. The price of period products. Oof, unnecessary. <laughs> and 2023. Joyful. Love that. Love that. I'm feeling that way too. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Good. Of course. Thank you so much for the space that you're creating for these really important conversations that we don't get to have. Maheen gave amazing advice on what an advocate actually looks like and also hit on the reality that our careers with the cause will look different over time. But even though our positions change, the main goal can still be the same. For more on the work Maheen and her colleagues are doing, head on over to grantmakersforgirlsofcolor.org. Have a great week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 